Certainly can't add anything to that prayer. What a blessing. I didn't know that David was, this was his last Sunday. That makes me sad but glad for those that will receive him. And feels like losing a brother in a sense, even though I don't know him well. I haven't been here long, but uh, as a family, it's part, of, it's part of his family. Feels that way, but of course, I think we would say we're sending him, wouldn't we? So, special. So my name is Taylor. Good morning. It's a privilege to be here. This morning's sermon text is, as you know, 2 Samuel 7. And if you need a title, I don't think it's written anywhere. Let me give it to you if you're taking notes and you want that. Will you build me a house? God's plan to save the world through David, but without David's help. Will you build me a house? God's plan to save the world through David, but without David's help. Let me give you a little idea. This is a pretty young congregation from where I stand. Let me give you an idea of how old I am. When Last of the Mohicans came out, well, I saw it in the theater. Let me just stop there. And I saw it with my mom, I think. I, was, I think I was still at that point a little too young to have, have wheels. So I went and saw it with mommy. And a uh, pretty intense movie, but obviously one of the best actors in Hollywood, even then, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, and, and so it's, I've, I've seen it a few times since then, but in that movie there are a few really powerful scenes, as you know if you've seen it, um, and in one in particular, Hawkeye, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, he's with Cora, his love interest, and I think the British troops are coming, and they're behind this waterfall, and there's this sheet of water you know, coming down, they're in the cave, and the water's falling, on the other side of him, and he, they're gonna take her and she's gonna be okay for whatever reason. I think because um, Duncan, that's the head of the regiment there, is he likes, he, has a, he fancies Cora, so she'll be fine. But if he's found, he's a dead man, you know, so he, he has to get away, and there's this sheet of water falling, and he grabs her, and if you've seen the movie, you remember this line, he says, no matter what may occur, I will find you. And then he just jumps through the, the sheet of water, disappears, and, and uh, heads down the river. But that, in a sense, is what, it's, those are powerful words, and he ends up backing them up. You just, you just believe him. You're like, How is that going to happen? But you just believe it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. He's going to find her. He's gonna, no matter what it takes, he's going to come, and he's going to rescue her, and everything's going to be okay. Um, in a sense, that's what God's telling David, excuse me, and through, through David, us who trust in Christ or come to trust in Christ if you have not. He says, with even stronger language here in 2 Samuel 7, David, no matter what may occur, no matter what has been done in the past by way of disobedience, no matter what evil mankind has committed, and that's, you know, the, the history previous to David is, is just a sordid one, obviously, of man disobeying God, um, and no matter what you do, no matter what your descendants do, I'm gonna make you a promise right now. I'm gonna build you a house, and it's going to restore all things. Stephen Dempster, one of my favorite Hebrew Bible scholars, calls this one of the most important chapters in the Hebrew Bible, and it is. So without further ado, let's dig in. Three points this morning for those, again, note takers and people that need that. Um, 
context. That's right, I'm using context as my first point. It's because it starts with a C. Context, covenant, and Christ, our covenant keeper. Okay, so point one is context. We'll look at the context here. We'll dive into covenant, which is really the heart of what this is. We can't understand this without understanding what covenant is. So context, then two, covenant, three, Christ, our covenant keeper. Context. So a little context, backing up from this passage, what is the context of what we jump into here where David has been given rest all around from his enemies by God? Well, in, in a word, God had, had given a promise I should have done the math beforehand, but 800 years previous or so, give or take, to uh, Abraham, to Abram. And he said, from you, I'm going to make a people for myself that will, that will show the world what I'm like and that will bless the world and that will, through you, I will restore creation, is what he essentially tells Abram, who becomes Abraham, the father of many nations. And Again, there are 800 years leading up to David's moment where David is anointed king in 1 Samuel 16, and he is not the first king of Israel, as you might know, but the second king behind Saul. But he's the one who is anointed uh, king that God says, here is a man after my own heart. Saul, I put, I put away from me, as you read in this text, but you, I'm going to carry the promise that I gave to Abraham through you. I'm going to restore creation through your seed. So David's reached this point. He's been fighting. Ever since that anointing, he's essentially just been fighting tooth and nail for the Lord and against the Lord's enemies. His life has been one of war. And at this point in, first, in 2 Samuel rather, 7, verse 1, it starts off how? If you read verse 1, it starts off, and God had given David rest from all of his enemies. And because of that, David's a godly man, and he looks around and he says, I've... I built myself this house of cedar, this beautiful palace, and you're still in the tent. You're still dwelling, Lord, in the tent that you were in in the wilderness with Moses and the people 400 years ago. So he brings Nathan the prophet to him, and he says, I'd, I'm in this house. I want to build God a house, a place to live in. It's, it's a great, it, it seemingly comes from a great motive, and I think that it does. And, and Nathan says essentially what Brandon would probably say, or if I had the, you know, the authority, I or Drew would say, if one of you came and said, I just made so much money, I just sold my company, and I'm not even going to tell you how much, but I am going to tell you that I'm going to drop two and a half million dollars on you, not for yourself, of course, but for this local expression of the church, plow it into the kingdom. I mean, Brandon's not going to have to go hit his knees for that one, right? I mean, maybe I'm selling him short, but he's probably going to go, just like Nathan, do what is ever in your heart. God is with you, you know? <laughs> That's essentially Nathan's place here. But then God comes to Nathan. The word of the Lord comes to Nathan. Note, note the personal characteristics there that the Hebrew Bible gives to the word of the Lord. He's like a person, he comes, interesting. He comes to Nathan and he says, you tell David, will you build me a house? That's not the way it works. I'm gonna build you a house. So that's the context. Okay, 
I want to talk through what David did, well-intentioned. I'm going to build God a house. I just want to pause here for a second and say, this is often what we do. We often want to help God um, like David did, and we're often well-intentioned when we desire to help God along. When it comes even to matters of salvation, and this really is a salvific issue, even if David doesn't realize it, this is what God's plan to restore everything, okay? This is, this is the hot core of what God is about in the salvation arc of history, okay? And David just wants to help, but God says that is not the way it works. When it comes to salvation, I alone, I alone will bring it about. So a theological example first, I couldn't resist. Um, justification by faith alone. So being made right in God's eyes, you and me, being made right, being made righteous, fully righteous. The Roman Catholic Church, they don't have a problem with the, with the phrase justification by faith, but it's the alone at the end. Justification by faith alone. The sola, one of the five solas of the Reformation, which means alone. It's the alone bit that they don't like so much. God completely, God and only God, making us right before him. You can't do a thing to make yourself right before God. Not a thing. He's going to do it all. That's what he tells us throughout Scripture, and then he consummates that, and he affects it through Jesus Christ, doesn't he? And we're going to get there. Um, but the, it's sort of like a Jesus plus. Yes, God makes us righteous, and he does the work through Jesus, but we have to respond, and we have to show that this and that and the other, and there, somehow uh, we have to aid a little bit. We have to help build that house. Um, so that's a theological example, and just God says, and the Reformation said, no, the Scriptures say clearly through Christ, no, we can do nothing. We are dead in our trespasses. God places his love upon us, draws us to himself irrevocably, and he does the work of salvation in Christ alone. So everyday example, more pedestrian and less theological, but it ties in. And I think in a thousand ways, we want, we want to help God. We want to clean ourselves up a little bit. We want to do this or that for approval. I mean, every day, when I, if I'm honest, every day when I wake up, I have a mentality that, okay, today I have to prove myself somehow, even if it's just a tiny thing in the back of my head, and I would never say that. But I live in such a way every day when I wake up that I'm essentially going to respond to God, not out of what he's done, which is the right thing to do, but almost so that he will shower his love and affection and embrace on me. Hmm? And that has to be crucified every day because our good works are simply a response, aren't they? They're not anything that God considers when he chooses to come and to rescue us and to save us and to put his love upon us. He doesn't love me because of what I've done for him. He loves me in spite of what I've done, and the same is true for you. So crucifying that fleshly mentality to give God something, to help God a little, to build God a house. Um, and this is one of the things that got this mentality, this understanding, crucifying that, and then really choosing to trust the word of God that clearly states in Paul's letters in Romans and, in el and elsewhere, even as far back as Genesis 15, which we'll get to in a bit, where Abraham believed the word of God, 
He didn't do a thing. He trusted God's word, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Trusting that fact that I had been made right with God through the work of Christ, ultimately, and not through anything I was doing, because at this moment, what I'm referring to in life, it was the hardest moment of my life. Um, it was during seminary. I was wrestling with sin, with I, the black dog of sin. We each probably have something that in our lives at one point or the other, maybe it's now for you, a sin that it's a besetting sin. We, it's almost like we, it has a power over us and we can't beat it down and it just keeps coming up and up and up. Um, and it, uh, I was feeling very unrighteous. And I was living in unrighteousness, but I was trusting in Christ. The fact that Scripture told me that you are righteous through nothing that you've done, it's Christ's righteousness placed on you by your trusting in him and his work and in what he's done. This, this, this was the hardest point of my life for a reason I won't mention, but it, that, that fact that forensic factual righteousness that had nothing to do with me literally got me through that time. Um, so these, these are ways in which we can build a house for God, in a sense, and I think that we slip into that daily. And I think that David was in danger, in a sense, of slipping into that mentality here, which is why God comes to him. And how does, what does, God, how does God come to him? What does he remind David of and us of? So the first thing, if you look in verse 5, he reminds David first of who David is. He says to Nathan, you tell David my servant. He's reminding David of who he is. David's my servant. He's a king, but I've made him a king. Verse eight, you tell David my servant, will you build me a house? No. I'm gonna build you a house. Remember who you are. Remember where I took you from. I took you from following sheep around. That's not, I mean, that's pretty low. I came to the sheepfold and I sought you out and I found you and I chose you and I set you over my people to be their prince. So from following sheep around to be my prince. So he reminds us of who we are to put us in our right place in the best of ways, doesn't he? And also, the second thing that God does with David is he reminds David of who he is. Um, and, and can I submit, before I unpack this a bit in the text, that we can't be reminded of who God is without thinking more deeply about who we are. We can't truly understand who we are and delve into what makes us human and understand this, the inner workings, without delving into who God is. The two are inextricably related. As John Calvin says early on in his <clears throat> Institutes, Walker Percy, um, a more recent writer in Lost in the Cosmos, talks about the wonder and the mystery of how we can understand all these things about the universe, astrophysics, and yet we don't even know what's going on in here. And I think so much of that speaks to the fact that we, when we look at the stars, our broken condition doesn't really come into play. But when we look in here, it really does. It speaks to our broken condition that we can't even figure this out. We can't figure this out. Um, but it also speaks to the fact that I think that we've, as a, as a, as a postmodern, modern postmodern people, 
as a Western society, we've, we've strayed from God. And where, where has it left us? It's left us just feeling alone in the cosmos, not being able to understand ourselves. That's related to the fact that we, we don't look to God anymore. So, so God shows David, here's who you are. I want to remind you of where you came from, where I brought you. But he also says, here's who I am. I'm the God who's committed to being with my people. No matter what, I am the God who comes and makes a people for myself, and I commit, and I stick. Um, in verse 8, he uses the term, he says, you tell David that I am the Lord of hosts. So he reminds David of his might. The, the Lord of hosts conjures up its language that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 or 2, um, where God says, it says that the Lord created the universe and in all of the heavens and all of their host. So it's a creational term that conjures up. It, this is the God of creation we're talking about. It's also a word that speaks, uh, hosts is a martial term, it's military. It also speaks of, of the might of God in that way and, it, and it's used in the Exodus account. So this is the God who created all things and who brought his people out of Egypt, out of a decreation sort of atmosphere into, to bring them into a recreation. So this is very creational language, and it's reminding us that God's doing something here with David that's much bigger than simply saying, I'm going to make sure that you reign forever. It has to do with God recreating everything. It's a huge promise, and we're going to get into that. Um, but also, he's mighty, but he's also low. He's humble. Like Jesus said, right, I am, I am low and humble of heart. Take, take up your cross and follow me. You know, take, take my yoke upon you. Um, our God, this God of the Old Testament, he's humble. Uh, he, he says, I, f I was with my people in the wilderness um, for 40 years, and I didn't mind being in a tent then, and I don't mind it now. I was with them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I never left them. I provided manna for them every day. And that time in the wilderness reminds us that, I mean, it's it com almost completely characterized from the moment that they cross over, before that, from the moment before they cross the Red Sea, to the moment after they finish crossing the Red Sea, all the way through the 40 years, there's just disobedience left and right. Did God leave his people? He didn't. He's a humble, committed God. And then he mentions in this, in this passage, verses 6 and 7, where he's reminding David of the fact that he was with his people in the wilderness. He says, he mentions the time of the judges, which if you think in the Old Testament of the most sordid time in Israel's history, where they were at their low point, it's the, it's the time of the judges. There's a refrain that uh, they were without a king and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. There, there was almost, the distinction between Israel and the rest of the nations around them was almost completely erased. But God says, in that time, I didn't forsake my people. And um, what David essentially is telling his people is that, and tell, telling David here through Nathan is that God does not, um, he does not need our help saving the world. He does not, I don't need your help, David, to establish your reign, to bless you, and to, to affect my will to, to restore creation through you. I don't need your help. I'm going to do it through you, but despite you, and despite every other human power or spiritual power. And briefly, David's response, and this wasn't in your text um, that was put up there behind me, but the verse after Nathan's prophecy is David's, so that whole passage after that through verse 29 is David's response. 
It's a prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. And if we had an hour and a half for a sermon, we'd go there. We don't. Um, But the first verse says that then King David went in, after he hears this prophecy, his first response, verse 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Um, that, that word there, then David, King David went in and sat before the Lord. That word sat in the ESV, if you, your few Bibles are ESV, it's the same word used in the first verse, 7-1. Now when the king lived in his house, it's the same Hebrew word. So you could say, in a sense, when David heard that prophecy, he just went in and he just lived before the Lord. It can mean dwelled or sat, okay? He just dwelled, he lived there. And I think if we could just, if I could just briefly encourage you and exhort you, when we think on what God has done and how through Abram, David, and ultimately Christ, he has affected our salvation and begun the process of restoring all things, and he's going to finish it when Christ returns. Um, when we remember God's might and his humility and his uh, uncompromising um, commitment, unilateral, one-sided commitment to saving us. Uh, we, can we take notes and just from David's response here and just imitate him when he just goes? First thing, he, he, there are a lot of things he could have done here. He could have started jumping up and being like, huh, I'm going to have a son that's never, ever going to be, not be on the throne. Amazing. He could have started exulting in himself. He doesn't. He goes and he just lives before the Lord. And can I submit to you that this is one of the keys, I think, to David's greatness? He's continually said of him, even though he sins, he sins in a big, big way. And if you want to read about that, Psalm 51. Um, but he is a man after God's own heart. He loves God, and he loves the promises of God, and he loves God's character, and he loves just living before God. And can I, can I just encourage us, if there's one thing that I would encourage us to, to continue to sow into our private, personal, individual lives, but also into our corporate lives as a community, in gathering, in parish gathering, um, throughout our days, to continue to discover together how can we live before the Lord in this way? How can we live in silence and in wonder and in meditation on what he's done, on his word, in prayer, in song? When we get together and perish, trying to weave and to fold even more of this into uh, what, how we live together as a community. That's this response. Okay. So that's context and covenant. Um, point two, covenant. So context covenant. Okay, first off, what is a covenant? I'll give it to you briefly. A covenant is a bond in blood. It's the most serious agreement's too weak of a word. Contract is too weak of a word. It's the most serious agreement that two people can enter into. Relationship would be better. It's the most serious type of relationship that two parties can enter into. And it's signed in blood. It's a bond in blood. Literally, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, when covenant is spoken of, it's not, it's not said to make a covenant. It's said to cut, to cut a covenant, which speaks to how it's done. 
And what that means is, in the ancient Near East, when a covenant was made, and it wasn't just made in the Bible, it was made in other ancient Near Eastern neighbors, okay? It was made by a greater and a lesser party, usually, and the greater party is the one who put it into effect. And what happened is you would cut, typically cut animals in half and set the halves on the side of each other so you could essentially walk down the middle of the halves of the animal. And both parties did that. They walked down the middle of the killed and cut open animals. And when they did that, what they were saying through their actions is, I'm committed in blood to this relationship. If I break it, if I break the terms of this thing, then my blood is gonna be shed. So life, my life is taken, my life is forfeit. And what the scriptures clearly tell us is that Adam, as our head, entered into a covenant of works with God, according to God's word, where God said, anything you want, you got. The bounty of my creation is yours, but don't do this thing. And we all know Adam did that thing. Adam and Eve did that thing, but Adam represented Eve, and he represented all of us, because all of us have come from him. So literally, physically, in his loins was this, us, and everyone in Houston and everyone that we know. Okay, so we were represented, the Bible says, in Adam, and he broke covenant with God. And the history of the Hebrew Bible is essentially the same, that we have broken, we have broken covenant with God. There's not a single party that uh, kept covenant with God. And one objection, you might say, look, I didn't sign up for that. I did not sign up for that. That's not fair. On the surface, that sounds fair enough. However, I think it's, if I can help a little bit, it's sort of like my daughter, my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. If I say, if she's on a high precipice and there's no rail, first of all, this ain't going to happen, right? I'm not going to let her come up to the edge. But if I did, and I said, Avery, don't step off that ledge. And she looked at me and she was like, that's not fair. And she stepped off. Okay. First of all, it's not a matter of fairness there, is it? It's a matter of fact. That's how the world works. My word is telling her how the world works, and it's helping keep her safe. It's helping bless her. God's word is the same. When he gave it to Adam, he gave it to, his word is the moral fabric of the universe in a very similar way. So when he gives us his word, it's not like do this, do this, do this, do this, or else. It's like this is the way the world works. It's an act of love. I'm telling you because I don't want you to get hurt and I want you to be blessed. That's what God's word is. And what we do when we break it is we shake our fist against him as we step off the ledge. The joke's on us, but it's not a joke, is it? It means death. So breaking God's word, God's word is life. So what happens when you break life? You die, which is what Paul says in Romans and elsewhere. We, when you tear, when you rage against the moral fabric of the universe, you're going down. Um, so that's what we have done. The scriptures clearly tell us this is what we have done. So that's what a covenant is. We've all entered into it through Adam. We've all broken it. This is the significance of it, okay? Um, now, what's the scope of this covenant that God makes with David? If you, I've mentioned this um, verse before, but the Lord... In verse 8, he calls himself the Lord of hosts. He says, you tell David that the Lord of hosts is going to build him this house and give him a reign that will never end. 
Why is God connecting this creational title, Lord of hosts, to what he's doing for David? Well, he's doing it because, as I've said, this covenant that God's making with David is bigger than David's house. The covenant God makes with Israel is bigger than Israel, isn't it? It's to bless the nations. It's to bless creation. It's to restore all things. It's to, in a sense, redo, reconstitute what Adam has undone, what we have undone. So this is why this creational language is sown throughout this text. God is telling David, I'm going to remake everything through you, not through any help of yours, um, but through you, through one of your sons. And can I submit that David gets this? If you look at um, the way that we didn't read this verse, but the very last verse in this passage, verse 29, David uses the word bless three times. He uses the word bless three times. Because he understands the word bless, that's what, when in Genesis 1, 28, when God makes Adam and Eve, he makes everything, and at the end of that, he makes man and woman. And what, what does he say? He says, God bless them. It's just a seminal Jewish, Hebraic, creational fact. Every Jew knew this. David knew this. God blessed the man and the woman, and he said to them, you know, I'm going to give you a people, and I'm going to give you a land. It's the same promise that he gave to Abraham. It's the same promise he's giving to David, and David recognizes that. This is bigger than me. This goes all the way back to Genesis. God, you're gonna remake everything. You're gonna restore Eden. You're gonna restore creation through my seed. Um, the second, there are a million traces of this throughout this text, of this creational fabric, but just one more. Um, if you look at like verse one, for instance, verse nine, it's also in, and verse 11, um, it says, uh, if I can just read verse one, now when the king lived or dwelled in his house and the Lord had given him, what, rest from all his surrounding enemies. And that's repeated. The word enemies, rest from your enemies, is repeated at least two more times in the text, verses nine and 11. What that's pointing us to is, yes, God created us to dwell on the earth, to multiply to dwell in his presence and to rest like he did at the end of his creating. He rested on the seventh day to imitate him in that cycle. But also, what happens after that creation? What happens after that creation is that um, Adam and Eve blow it, like we've talked about. We know this. They, they disobey God. They flout him. And the consequence, because they've been given charge over creation, is no, they, they don't just die, but all creation dies. All creation cracks under their rule because they have severed their tie with God. Um, and the center of this curse in Genesis 3 is the first mention of the gospel. It's Genesis 3.15. And in that, in that curse, that curse is like 10 verses long. And there's a literary device in the Hebrew. It's called a chiasm. Just going to give you your Hebrew literary term for the day. A chiasm or a chiasmus. And all the chiasm is, is it's a literary device in the Hebrew that's used quite often to make a point. And it's a mirror device. So what is said here is mirrored down here. So in this curse, where God comes and says, because you've done this, cursed are you man, cursed are you woman, 
cursed are you serpent. And then from that, he comes out and then finishes with the woman and the man. So it goes man, woman, serpent, woman, man. So man is at the beginning and the end of the curse. Then you have woman who's at the, in the middle, well, in the, the second mention and the second to last mention. And then in the middle of that, in the hot core of the curse, here's the point. One time, the serpent is cursed. And in the middle, in the hot core of that curse, is a promise. And here's, here's what the verse says in Genesis 3.15. It says this. God says, I will put enmity. That's the same root for enemy. It's in our text this morning. I will, put, I will make enemies between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. This word offspring is also used in our text, by the way, where, God's, where God says to David, I will bless your offspring. So I will make enemies between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So in the middle of the curse of all creation, God steps in with a promise and he says, I'm gonna bring a seed from the woman that's gonna crush the head of the serpent that deceived man and woman and he's gonna defeat evil and he's gonna restore creation. It's the first promise of the gospel. It's called by theologians the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first promise of the gospel. And what God is doing in his language here, and David recognizes this, is he's taking us back to this. And he's saying, remember that promise of the gospel where I stepped, I stepped, I didn't just leave humanity to rot in their own devices, I stepped into the core, the hot core, the bullseye of the curse with a promise of someone that I would send who would come and restore all things. Well, that promise, okay, it wasn't Adam, right? It wasn't Abram, though that, that son would come from Abram because Abram was a man of faith, but he sure was a sinner too. And if you read the texts, you realize that he tried to, you know, soon after he proves faithful, twice he tries to sell his wife, you know, downriver to save his own skin. So it's, the text is clear with Abram's sin. He's not the man. Um, and then you have others leading to David. David here, um, he tries to build God a house out of good intentions, not going to work. God says, I'm going to build you a house, pal. But he's a man after God's own heart. But then a few chapters later, so this is 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 11, what happens? Bathsheba. God, uh, excuse me, David, uh, King David, uh, commits adultery with one of his best friend's wives and then has his best friend murdered. And his kingdom essentially unravels after that. So David's not the man, but the man's gonna, God's gonna bring that man from David's loins. Um, is, David gonna, is God gonna forsake David because he's done this? No. This text in part talks about Solomon because Solomon will come and build, David, build God a temple, a house. But it, it doesn't, I mean, this says, his reign will never end. So Solomon, he doesn't, he doesn't fit this bill completely. He doesn't fit this bill completely. His reign ends. He sows the seeds of exile, the exile of Israel, in his reign by worshiping false gods, marrying women who hate God. Jesus, right, as we all know, Jesus is clearly the son. Solomon's a partial fulfillment of this prophecy, but Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. And that's a, just a hermeneutic, a, a way of reading the scriptures for you. When you read prophecy, often there's, there's progressive fulfillment. There's a partial fulfillment, 
as in Solomon, but there's a final fulfillment as well. And often it's in Christ. And in this case, it, it, sh it most surely is in Christ. So lastly and quickly, but I don't want to skip this, Christ, our covenant keeper. So we've looked at context. We've looked at the covenant. Let's finish out as we ought to finish with Christ, our covenant keeper. So we've shown the failure of Adam. We haven't talked about the failure of Noah, but he also was given the promise of, I'm going to restore creation through you, Noah. Um, but right at the first thing he does after, he, after the ark lands is he sows, some, he sows some, a vineyard. He makes a vineyard for himself and gets drunk, right? So clearly the text is saying, Noah ain't the man. Abraham ain't the guy. Uh, Moses didn't make it into the promised land. Is, is, is humble and godly as he was. He was a sinner. Israel, no. No way. A sinful people. God chose them, though, to show, to show his love to them because he loved them, as Dodds said in one of his sermons, because he loved them, because he loved them, not because of who they were. David's not the man, as we've seen, which leaves the Hebrew people waiting for this advent, for this arrival, for this Messiah spoken of in the scriptures, spoken of in this chapter. It leaves us waiting. And we, thankfully, we wait in this season of advent. We wait with anticipation for the one who has come, don't we? We stand on this side of the Christ, when after 400 years of silence, as Jacob preached so, so poignantly last week, after God ceases to speak to his people in Chronicles, Kings, and Malachi, they've been sent into exile. They've just returned silence. They're waiting. Will these promises of Messiah come to pass? Who is this son? Matthew and Luke, the, the only two gospels to include birth narratives, both make it very clear that Jesus Christ, born of Mary, not of Joseph, so not carrying on the, seed, the sin seed of the man, but fully human as he is born through a woman, born of God, born of a woman, fully God and fully man. Both Luke and Matthew, Matthew in verse 1 and Luke starting in 1 verse 26, make it very clear, Jesus Christ is this son of David that 2 Samuel prophesied. We have, our wait is finished. Our wait is finished. For the first time in history, we will have someone who keeps the covenant. You see, the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15, if you want to look at that later in the afternoon, um, and that he gives to David here, as I've tried to make clear, most covenants in the ancient Near East, if not all, were two-sided, two parties, right? So we cut the animals and we both walk through them. Not, not this one, and not the one that God gave to Abram. And the one that God gave to Abram, and that is passed on through David and consummated in Christ, God lays, he has Abram lay the animals open, and then God himself, in the form of a burning torch, passes through the pieces. Abram just, Abram just falls asleep. He does nothing. That's how much you do. If you want to know how much you do in keeping the covenant, that's how much you do. You just hit the deck. It says a deep sleep overtook him, and you're just like, pfft. Uh, and it says that he just kind of saw this glowing, fiery, and I think God was protecting Abram from seeing his presence, but that's, we do nothing to keep the covenant. David did nothing. He, he did the opposite of nothing, you know. He, he, he went and slept with his best friend's wife, and, and, and we do things that are just as bad in our thought life, in our intentions. We're constantly not loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. We're constantly 
not loving our neighbor as ourselves. We're constantly focused on me. I am. Okay, so we are covenant breakers. Jesus, for the first time, he fulfills both sides of the covenant, as God said that he would. He, as a man, keeps all the stipulations of the covenant, full obedience before the Father. Not just in his actions, but what? Heart, mind. I live to serve the Father. He keeps, but does he keep them for him? Here's, here's a question, focus, and we're, we're almost done. We're almost done. Does Jesus keep the covenant for him? He doesn't need to. Jesus is the son that has come from the very heart of the Father. He has perfect approval. He doesn't need to prove himself. Well, who does he keep the covenant for then? Who does he live in full obedience for then? You. He is obeying the covenant for you. He is keeping the covenant for you. So when Jesus gets to the end of his life, his short 33-year life, he dies. His blood is shed as a covenant breaker. But did he break the covenant? No. Who did he die for? Not for him. Jesus didn't die for himself. He died for you. He died for me. That's what we deserved. Jesus kept the covenant, and he didn't deserve to pay the price of a covenant breaker. He paid it because we've broken the covenant. Jesus kept both sides of the covenant. He is David's true son from David's loins through the line of Mary and Joseph, born a man, born of God, who kept the one-sided unilateral covenant, and on him, God will build his house. And through him, God will restore creation. It's already started. And that process continues as we trust in Christ. In everything that we do by faith, guys, we are just planting seeds of recreation. If you do it in your own strength, trying to build God a house yourself, no. God just sets it aside. It's just going to burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. But if by faith you trust in the work of Christ and in your living out, in parish, in gathering, at work, in your family, with your enemies, with your friends, if you trust in the work that he's done and the fact that he started the process of recreation and he's going to finish it, he allows us to enter in and in what we do by faith to plant seeds of recreation. Now look, I, I, I started with Last Mohicans. I'm going to finish with Last Mohicans and then we're out. Got to keep it, got to keep it consistent here. There's another scene that I think is even more powerful in that movie. Uh, not the waterfall scene, but it also involves Cora and Hawkeye. And I think, I should have checked the facts on this one, but I think, and some of you can say yes or no, that in this scene it's Cora who's being held prisoner by the Indians. Hawkeye comes in and essentially says, take me for her, take me for her. Let's do a trade. This is atonement. This, is, this resonates powerfully with us because it's a trade. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm coming in. I'm free, but I'm going to offer up my freedom. Shackle me. Kill me. Let her go. Me for her. The powerful part of the scene is that Duncan, who's the British colonel, he would love nothing more than to see Hawkeye die and for Cora to go free because he loves Cora and he hates Hawkeye because Hawkeye is like his love interest competitor. So this is like perfect. But he's the only one that he's making the trade. Hawkeye says, Duncan, tell them me for her. 
Duncan is the only one that speaks this Indian tongue. So he tells them what Hawkeye has told him to. But actually, and you can't understand him, and neither can Hawkeye or Korah, what he's saying is, take me. It's powerful. It's powerful. It's powerful because all of a sudden, the Indians say, yeah, fine. And Hawkeye's like doing this. Like, okay, they're going to take me. And they go and take Duncan. And they strap him up on a, on a pole and they burn him, burn him alive. And Cora and Hawkeye get to go free. Gives his life for his enemies. Burned, crushed for his enemies. He could have gone free. Why does that resonate so powerfully with us? I'm going to tell you why. Because it's at the core of the universe. It's at the nexus of all, everything past and present and future that holds everything together. It, from the cross where Christ gave his innocent life up for us, his enemies, and paid the price, from the cross is the power to remake the worlds. And it's happening. And that is why, friend, even if you don't know it, that is why those kind of scenes resonate so powerfully with you because it's real and it's at the heart of the way things work. Praise God. 